0: this morning from Jeremiah 31, the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. We'll read the first 34 verses of the chapter and we do so in connection with Lord's Day 33, which speaks of the true conversion of man. We hear the inspired word of God, at the same time saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore with lovingkindness have I drawn thee. Again I will build thee, And thou shalt be built, O Virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets and shall go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. For there shall be a day that the watchman upon Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise ye. And let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. For thus saith the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, And shout among the chief of the nations. Publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, And gather them from the coast of the earth. And with them the blind and the lame, The women with child, And her that travaileth with child together, a great company shall return thither. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off. And say, he that scattereth Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd. And their soul shall be as a watered garden, and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy, and will comfort them, and make them rejoice from their sorrow. And I will satiate the soul of the priests with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness Seth the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rahal, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Thus saith the Lord, refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears. For thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. And there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented, and after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Set thee up way marks, make thee high heaps. Set thine heart toward the highway. Even the way which thou wentest, turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again to these thy cities. How long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth, a woman shall come pass a man. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, As yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof when I shall bring again their captivity. The Lord bless thee, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. And there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all the cities thereof together husbandmen and they that go forth with flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Upon this I awaked and beheld and my sleep was sweet unto me. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, And the children's teeth are set on edge, but every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it on their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We read that far. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. As I stated in connection with this passage, as well as others will make reference to, we have the teaching of Lord's Day 33 in the back of our Psalters on page 19. Lord's Day 33, question answers 88. 89 90 and 91 continuing now in the third part of the catechism of thankfulness and this lord's day really is an introduction to our treatment of the law which we begin next lord's day lord willing question 88 of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist of two parts of the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new man Question 89. What is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins, and more and more to hate and flee from them. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ, and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which proceed from a true faith are performed according to the law of God and to his glory and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this Lord's Day speaks of conversion. Lord's Day 32 talked about the fact that we've been renewed by the Holy Spirit and we have been made new converted people except we be converted to god we cannot do good works as new children in christ we don't live according to our own will we desire to do the will of our heavenly father and to live according to god's will is in general what it means to live a life of conversion we seek a life that is directed to god and is for his glory And for his honor. Now it's good the Catechism takes up this subject. Otherwise, there would be very little preaching devoted to the subject of the conversion of man. Not only has Christ done great things for us, the emphasis here now is on the great wonders that Christ has done in us. We often talk about what Christ has done for us. As important is to emphasize, what he has done and is doing currently in us. He continues his work, Jesus does, by his spirit in the elect sinner. And that's the work of conversion. It's not my work. It's not your work. It's the wonder of God's work in me by Christ through his spirit by which he's guiding and leading us in the way everlasting. Jeremiah makes that abundantly clear here in Jeremiah 31, and especially in connection with Ephraim. Through the history of the Old Testament, Ephraim was always combating with Judah for prominence in Israel. God had made clear Jesus was going to come from the tribe of Judah. Judah would be the one who would rule her brethren. Ephraim was continually objecting, fighting, even going to war at times. God here comes with a wonderful word of comfort. Even though she's been rebellious, even though she's despised God's will and God's ways, God is going to work a wonder. He will turn her. And beloved, that's the wonder that we experience in our lives. We are like Ephraim, rebellious, fighting God's will, doing battle with regard to those in our lives. And God comes to us and God says... I will turn you. And what's her confession? God, turn me, and I am turned. Through the wonder of conversion, we are turned. And our life now is directed to God and to his glory. We take up that subject, true conversion, noting the idea of it, the activity of it, and finally the fruit of it. The true conversion of man is what we take up here in this Lord's Day. Now, first we need to emphasize that conversion is necessary. Note that emphasis that comes out throughout this Lord's Day and the previous. Conversion is absolutely necessary. It's not something that's just required for major sinners who have been walking in a very rebellious way and now they need to be converted. It's that which is necessary for all of us. And it's necessary for our children. Conversion also isn't something that takes place once. It's a lifelong experience. All those who are God's children experience every single day this wonder by which God turns them. And they're turned. Now what's the possibility of it? Regeneration. Regeneration is the root of conversion. And the only possibility of our being converted is that Jehovah God has worked new life in our hearts. And it's important for us to understand that. What is regeneration? Regeneration is the wonder by which the Holy Spirit gives to the dead elect sinner life. He takes that sinner and unites him to Christ. And the result now is that we live out of Christ. We're not our own. We belong to him. The life that we live isn't our own life. It's Christ's life that's living within us. With regard to that wonder, we confess this is all God's work. It's something that we're entirely passive with regard to. It's a wonder by which Jehovah God takes hold of us, dead sinners, and gives us life. A life that is from above. It's a wonder that's referred to as making us a new creation. We are new creatures in Christ. And it's necessary because of who we are by nature. We're dead. Spiritually dead. And as those who are spiritually dead, the only possibility of our salvation is that we are given life. A life that's from above. This is the sovereign work of Jehovah God. And that's our encouragement. If it were not the sovereign work of Jehovah, and if this was our work, regenerating ourselves, we would all our life be worried about whether or not we would be retained or kept in that communion with Christ. Would that new life remain in us or not? Did we do enough to earn it? Was our labor sufficient? And God says, no. That wonder by which you were dead and are given life from above is all the work of Jehovah God. And the result then is that that new life, that union to Christ, cannot be lost it can never be broken your sins though they're grievous will not undo the wonder of regeneration what a comfort beloved we have life in Christ and because of the wonder of Jehovah God implanting that life within us we will be preserved and we will be kept to all eternity in the wonder of that new life Now, it's not always evident in our lives as we would desire. Our consciences smite us sometimes with regard to it. But nothing, nothing can separate us from the wonder of that love. Now, those who are regenerated need continually to be called to conversion. That seed that God has implanted grows. It comes to expression in our consciousness. And this mysterious often in the confessions called ineffable, that is marvelous, impossible for our minds to wrap around, is the wonder of God by which he gives us that first fruit of union with Christ. And that seed now that's been planted grows, and it must come to expression in our lives. Called to conversion, we respond. And God works in us then the putting away, the putting off of sin and the delight in and the pursuit of the things that are right and the things that are good. That call to conversion in no way implies that man can convert himself. We understand that. This is God's work. Jehovah God is the only one that can work repentance. He's the only one that can work a response to that wonder. And he's the one that causes now that seed that he planted to grow, to increase. Now this conversion involves a number of things. First of all, we would say it involves the whole of a person. There are different aspects to our lives. There's a public aspect to our life and there's a more private aspect. The public outward side is seen more by others, whereas that private involves our will, our desires, our hidden thoughts. All of it is affected by the wonder of conversion. God wills that that conversion not just show itself outwardly. The Pharisees did a good job with that, but Jesus condemned them. It has to flow from the heart. It's not good enough just outwardly to give expression to some aspects of obedience God wills that that conversion flow out of a heart so that our wills, our desires, our ambitions are in line with what he has commanded. And as such then, it affects the whole of our life. It infects our life in our homes, our private life in our closets, as well as our life interacting with others. Not just that I do what's right, but I want to do what's right. God goes to work on our will and he changes and transforms our will so that now I want to do what's pleasing in his sight. I desire to keep his commandments. And from that perspective then, the true conversion of a man has to do with, again, his heart. A change of thought, a change of perspective, a transformation by which God has given us new hearts. Hearts that love him. A wristwatch without hands is worthless because one has the proper movement, but the hands aren't reflecting what's going on. If a wristwatch just has hands but no movement behind it, similarly, it's worthless. Conversion is the wonder by which God gives us a new heart, and now flowing out of that heart is practical transformation of life and walk the whole of the person affected isaiah 55 verse 7 let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the lord but this conversion not only involves the whole of life it involves every aspect of our walk and our conduct it involves what takes place at church it takes place what pl- takes place in our home someone may be a faithful churchgoer but a tyrant of a husband another might be someone who goes to church and shows themselves upright but is a dishonest business person true conversion then is not evident that true conversion extends through one's whole being and one's whole life when we're children when we're young people when we're young adults, when we're older saints. So that it's that which not only affects the whole of our being, it affects the whole of our trajectory in life. We never get to the point where we say, I'm converted. And so now, conversion is no longer necessary in my life. That turning is constantly taking place in our lives. Now God works the beginning of that wonder in different ways. Some suddenly experience a trajectory dramatic conversion experience, like as Paul did on the road to Damascus. For others, it's more gradual as God regenerates in infancy and as he brings us up and we learn to pray and we learn to memorize scripture and there's that steady growth, that steady development so that we look back and we don't identify any event or any time when something dramatic occurred. What's important is not that we look back and identify the time of our conversion or when it is that we were transformed. What's important is that we're living now a life of conversion. That I am walking in a manner that reflects the fact that I know my sin. I'm fleeing from it. I'm pursuing the will of God. And we confess this is a wonder by which I have a new beginning. But that new beginning is never finished until God takes me to glory. Never do we get to a point where we've, so to speak, attained. Never can I get to a point where I say, I don't have to pray anymore. Lead me not into temptation. I don't have to pray. Deliver me from evil. Constantly, my whole life long, I'm being tempted. And I'm having to pray that prayer. Because God implants that new life within a depraved nature. And my nature remains depraved until I die. We would say that the necessity of daily conversion is no lesser as we grow in grace. Always that old man of sin is present. And that old man of sin is trying to gain back the dominion that he desires. And so that new man has to continually be watching, praying, fighting that good fight over against the powers of darkness. What is that conversion then? That conversion is such that God daily brings to our consciousness our sin. We've walked somewhere we ought not have walked. We've thought thoughts we shouldn't have had. And God now turns us. He calls us to turn, to repent. And that's what repentance is, to turn away from that sin and now to walk in the pursuit of his will. We would never do this of ourselves. But God works in us by his spirit, that wonder. He uses his word. He uses admonitions. He uses parents. He uses office bearers. God makes use of many means in our lives as Jehovah God ultimately by his word and by his spirit is accomplishing that transformation. And he moves us so that walking in the way of sin, we lied. We didn't tell the truth to our parents. We cheated. And now we're smitten with guilt. And so we turn. But that's not good enough. We need to turn and we need to now do what's right. We need to make things right. We say, I'm sorry. We confess our sin and we're assured of forgiveness. John Calvin described the process this way. As this restoration is not finished in a moment, in a year, or a day, but God abolishes the corruption of the flesh in his elect by a continual, yes, sometimes slow, advance. He cleanses them of their filthiness, sanctifies them to be his temples, renewing all their senses in order that they may exercise repentance their whole life long and may know that this military service does not end except by death. A reference to military service. We know how rigid, how stringent military service is. We're in a battle. And that battle is so intent that the devil is constantly using the world, he's using our own flesh against us. And over against that, then, we need to stand. Now, God made Ephraim aware of this. And that's the striking context here of Jeremiah 31. Ephraim had done nothing to make himself worthy of God's fellowship or God's communion. As a matter of fact, Ephraim, throughout his history as a tribe in Israel, had done everything to demonstrate they were not worthy. They were rebellious. Constantly they were rebelling against God. God would raise up faithful leaders. Ephraim would be jealous. Why didn't you invite us to battle? Why didn't you call upon us to assist? Instead of rejoicing in the wonderworks that God was working, Ephraim was always complaining. Ephraim always wanted more honor, wanted a greater position of prominence. And Ephraim, throughout, failed again and again to maintain obedience and faithfulness before God. Ephraim deserved to be cast off as a tribe. Why would God continue to deal graciously with Ephraim? And yet, what did God do? This chapter speaks of a wonder by which God is chastising. Ephraim is comprised also of God's children. God has his elect among Ephraim. And therefore, God, in love, is chastening his Ephraim. And with loving correction, God is bringing Ephraim to confess their sin, to look to him for mercy, and to know the wonder of his grace and deliverance. God turned Ephraim to himself. God did so by a wonder of grace. So that Ephraim, now again, when we speak of Ephraim as a tribe, we're not speaking every single man, woman, and child in Ephraim. We're using it as God does Israel. As that which depicts now the spiritual seed within the tribe. God caused that Ephraim to confess their sin, to know their sin to be sorrowful for it. And God showered his mercy upon this wayward son, Ephraim, who again and again was rebellious, again and again had failed to show any faithfulness. What did God do? God turned him, and he was turned. And that's the confession now that Jeremiah here speaks of in Jeremiah 31. God had predicted this would happen years and years before, which is equally remarkable. So that this turning of Ephraim was a fulfillment of Scripture. If you recall, years prior, God had set Ephraim and Manasseh before Jacob. And Jacob had blessed the two sons of Joseph. Those of you who are memorizing Hebrews 11, remember that phrase. That God blessed the two sons of Joseph. Well, when Jacob blessed those two sons of Joseph, you remember his hand placement. He put his hands on Manasseh and Ephraim in such a way that his left hand was on the older Manasseh and his right hand on Ephraim. He put his right hand on Ephraim. And initially there was an attempt. You you, you got it wrong, Jacob. Ephraim's not the one that should be blessed because right hand would be a greater blessing. But Jacob had it right, because he was doing what God had intended. And Ephraim is the one who would be blessed above Manasseh. And Ephraim would cry out in response, Surely, after that I was turned, I repented. And after that I was instructed, I smote my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Verse 19. God brought Ephraim later on to that place that would display spiritual significance within Israel. Even though she had shown herself so rebellious and so disobedient, a tribe that seemingly God would have no place for, God demonstrates his goodness. She convert. She's converted. And she confesses that conversion was God's, Wonder by which she now would bring forth fruit. The Catechism rightly then talks about that conversion as a process, something that we see even in the cycles of nature as we look around us. Every fall we see the dying. And then in spring we see things coming green again, coming alive. There's renewing that's taking place. Mortifying of the old, a quickening, a renewing, of the new. It doesn't happen in a moment. Just as the trees don't all of a sudden have leaves on and all of a sudden they have blossoms and all of a sudden they're bearing fruit. It's a process. The quickening of the new is a more and more as the trees, the shrubs increasingly show their green, their buds come, and then they're restored from death into life. Such a wonder God is working with regard to his children. A wonder that affects the whole of our being, that affects the whole of our life from early on, and a wonder that continues until we die. Now what is that activity that's taking place? Concretely, what's happening in this wonder of conversion? We have the mortifying of the old and the quickening of the new. What is the old man? The old man is that person of the Christian as he still lives from his sinful nature. We still have our natures that are sinful, and those sinful natures remain in us until we die. After regeneration, that sinful nature is still there. And the old man is constantly tempting the believer to walk in the way of sin. Even after I've been converted. Even after God has regenerated me, that wonder is such that it's not perfected until we get to glory. And so, that old man of sin is closely tied to the things of this life, and our lives are closely tied to the things of this life. And so, we're tempted to walk outside the realm of obedience. Children are tempted, young people are tempted, adults are tempted. We're tempted to be proud. We're tempted to be selfish. We're tempted to pursue our own will, our own way. We're tempted to give in to the temptations of the world about us, to get drunk, dabble with the drugs of the world, get involved in all of the licentiousness and all the sinfulness, the coveting, the greed, the cheating, the stealing. We're tempted to get engaged in all of those sinful activities. This old man of sin is constantly tempting us and setting before us those allurements. It must be mortified. It must be put off. It must be killed. Now again, ultimately, we can't dispose of that old man. God will do that at the moment of death. But we kill the old man. We mortify the old man by avoiding, by rejecting those influences by saying no to those temptations by turning away from them and that's the calling that is spoken of here and that's the wonder that jehovah is working in our hearts and in our lives now especially two ways are laid out here as to how that old man is crucified first we crucify the old man by being able to know our sin and to be sorry for it that's a wonder of grace that i identify my sin i know my sin And I'm sorry for my sin. It's a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins. We recognize our sins not as to the consequences of them merely. They affect me. I'm troubled because of it. That's not our main concern. Our main concern is I sinned against God. I have violated the will of my almighty heavenly father. Against God. Think of David. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done evil in thy sight. Psalm 51 verse 4. I recognize I'm a sinner and I'm sinful. It's not just that I do bad things. That bad is flowing out of a nature that's depraved and sinful. So that my thoughts and my actions have to constantly be brought back into check. I shouldn't think that way. I may think evil. And we constantly are reminded then of our sin and our sinfulness. And again, not just sin in general. Specific sins. Specific commandments that I violate. That I'm thinking evil when I ought not. That I'm saying things. I'm gossiping. I'm slandering. Specific ways in which I am violating the will of my Heavenly Father. I know God's will, and I'm not keeping it. And we don't just pray then in general, forgive me of my great and many sins. We do that, but we pray specifically. My sin of doing this this morning. My sin of not doing this this morning. I'm convicted by the way in which I conducted myself today, and the various ways in which I sinned against God And I sinned against my neighbor. And there's a true sorrow then that's evident. And I confess it. Now it's easy to hate some sins, especially the sins of others. It's easy for us to see sin in others and to hate that. Much more difficult it is for me to hate the sin that looks alluring in my life. The sin that promises freedom, that promises liberty. To hate that sin when I know that hatred of that sin is going to cost something. In my life. It's perhaps going to cost a friend. It's going to cost a price. When I see my sin. In all it's horror. I'm sorry. That's the wonder that God works. That's his work of conversion. I see it as sin against the almighty God. And he works in us. To confess it. But secondly. It's to hate and to flee. More and more to hate. To hate and to flee from them. This is a way that we demonstrate and that it's evident that we are sincere. God not only works in us to identify sin, He works in us that more and more we hate those sins. We realize how offensive they are to God. We realize the consequences of them in our lives. We see how disruptive them they are in relationships. And we hate that sin. We don't want to fall into it. And that's Behind the prayer, deliver me from evil. I know the horror of evil. I do not want to be tempted. Keep me from temptation. And so that becomes the experience of our lives. We see our sin in all of its horror. Those old habits, those old qualities, we find ourselves falling back into them. We're grieved by it. We hate it. And now we pray for the grace to flee it, to fight it. We don't say sorry and then keep continuing in them. We hate them. We turn away from them by God's grace. That's the sanctification that God is working in our hearts. Now, beloved, do you hate sin? Do you despise that sin because it's sin against the Almighty God? And do you flee it? tragically in our day people are more frightened of cancer than of sin people try harder to maintain their own physical appearance with diet and exercise than they do to keep themselves from sin we need to recognize sin for what it is and we thank god for the sensitivity that he works in our hearts giving unto us that new life and that new life that directs us To our sin. That's the emphasis of the catechism here. And that's the emphasis throughout. I know my sin. Not the sins of others. That's not my focus. My focus is on myself. My sin before God. And it grieves me. It drives me to my knees in sincere sorrow. It causes me to cry out in agony. The knowledge of my sin makes me pray fervently. Come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. I want Jesus to return again in order that I might know the wonder and the victory forever from that sinful nature. I'm in the family of God. I know His friendship and His fellowship. As we read in Jeremiah 31, I know the wonder by which Jehovah God has said to me, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And that shames me then when I continue To go back to those same sins. How thankful I should be. How I ought to be living to the glory and honor of God. And yet, I don't do it as I ought. We flee sin. But we flee sin for a purpose. To more and more cling to God. And that's the quickening of the new man. Not just putting it off, but looking to God for grace and strength. And the new man is that aspect which is renewed after the image of Christ as it dwells within us. It's the new heart that God has given. So that Jehovah God has implanted a new heart within that sinful nature. And that new man is transformed according to the wonder of the power of regeneration and the work of the Spirit. God gives us not only to know my sin, He gives me to delight in what's right and to desire to do what's pleasing in his sight. That's the wonder of sanctification. And God is using means again in my life. He uses us as parents to teach our children no to sin and yes to what's right, to discipline them firmly, consistently, to direct them to that which is good. God makes use of friends. We encourage one another in the Lord, spouses, children, parents, so that together, God works in us that sensitivity and that desire to do what's right. But ultimately, again, it's all His Word and His Spirit. This is God's work in our lives. As He's making me not only more sensitive to sin, but He makes me grow in my love and my devotion to Him. And I want to do what's pleasing in His sight. That new man testifies, I'm a child of God. It works in me. Abba, Father, And it constrains me that the purpose of my life is not for me, it's for God and his glory. And as I increasingly stand before that wonder, I now want to live unto him. I want to show forth his praise. Now just as there's two ways that that old man is put off, there's two ways, the catechism says, in which that new man is quickened. First, it's a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ. We love God in Jesus Christ. We realize the victory that he's given us. And out of love for him, we want to do what's right in his eyes. There's a sincere joy that lives in our hearts. The joy of salvation and the hope of everlasting life. And so it's a conscious willingness and desire then to put ourselves under the dominion of God's will, not our own. God's interested in why we do what we do. We do it with joy. We do it from the heart. We've been brought out of bondage. And now we seek to live unto Him. Joy in our salvation. But secondly, with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. With love and delight, God stirs us up. We want to live unto Him. We don't want to serve self. God has freed us from that bondage and we now desire to live unto him and God is to be served and he wills that his vessel which he has filled with honor now be directed to his glory. And so there's no apology then for reading the law every week as a church of Jesus Christ. That law is our delight. That law is at the heart of our daily conversion. God has taken that law and he's written it Upon our heart. Verse 33 This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their un- inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. What a wonder! God makes it so that we know Him. We don't have to tell one another what it is that pleases God. We know what pleases God. And we're ashamed. We don't sin because we didn't know better. We sin because we wanted to do something that was sinful. Our old man got a better of us. And now in shame we acknowledge we knew better. And we repent. We turn from that sin by God's grace. We find our delight in God's will. And so powerful is that delight that we sing with the psalmist oh how love I thy law. Isn't that astounding that God works in our hearts the wonder by which we love his will. We love his ways. His law is not restrictive. His law is our delight. His law is the way of freedom. To submit to God's will, even when it seems in our lives it might be foolish, but we do it. Trust not In our own will, our own ways, but in all of our ways, we acknowledge him. Walking not as we would, not as we think is best, but how would God have me to walk? Our will is brought into subservience with God's. And that's how we pray. Thy will be done. And then there's fruit. And what is the fruit that is evident in our lives? It's the fruit of good works. Good works which proceed from a true faith the Catechism here introduces that last question and answer, 91, as a transition to the law. And it discusses now the fact that why is the law so important? Because works that are truly pleasing in God's eyes are only those that are performed according to the law of God. The law is our guide. The law is that which we look to to know how would God have me to live? How do I live out of this new life of conversion? And how do I show forth his praise? And so we ask ourselves, what is a good work? And that's what the catechism here, in a marvelous way, in question 91, defines what a good work is. And what an important definition this is. Every good work, first of all, starts with God. God is the only one that can work anything good. There's nothing in this world that's good apart from God. And so anything that will be good, has to be God's work. Because a good work is going to affect the deed, it's going to affect the motive, it's going to affect the purpose of it. God never commends someone for mere outward actions. On the contrary, Jesus repeatedly emphasized, especially to the Pharisees, that outward obedience is nothing without a heart that is transformed and loves God. It must flow from the heart. And so good works are God's works. And God has pleased them to work them in his children. And God does so as those works that he has before ordained that we should walk in. What comes first, we could ask, us or good works? Good works come first in a sense. That God has all of these works that he desires to have performed and then he creates and makes and fashions us in order that those works now might be displayed and performed. As soon as the works that God ordained for us are fulfilled, our life on earth is finished and God takes us to glory. So that the significance of your and my life is that Jehovah God is working in and through us works that are pleasing to him. Works that he before ordained that we walk in. And until we've walked in all of those works and accomplished them, our life is has purpose and significance here below. Sometimes we struggle as we get older to see significance in our life. Be assured of this. God yet has works that he's working in and through your life. There's a purpose yet that God has for you. And we press on then with that realization. Now the catechism gives three requirements. First, they must be done from a true faith. And that is from a heart that's been renewed by God. Romans 14, verse 23, emphasizes the importance of that faith. Apart from faith, all is in vain. Faith is necessary. And what is faith? It's a gift from God. God unites us to himself, and now flowing out of that faith, there's fruit. But secondly, it must be in accordance with the will of God, as prescribed in his commandments. And Jesus talked about that again and again. Matthew 22, verses 37 following. We have to love God, love the neighbor. A true work that's pleasing in God's eyes is one that flows out of faith and is directed to the love of God. And then finally, it must be done to God's glory, not according to the imagination or institutions of men, to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, that whatsoever we do, whether we eat or drink, everything is to be done to the glory of God. Believers then alone are able to perform good works. That's an important conclusion that we come to. If this is the definition of what a good work is, no unbeliever is able to perform a work that's good according to this definition. Unbelievers can do things that appear good to us, but is it good in God's eyes? And we can't always judge that because we don't know the heart. God knows whether that work is flowing from a true faith directed to his glory and in accordance with his commandments. And God is the only one that works such a work in the heart of his elect, his children. And that's emphasized by our confessions. We have in the third and fourth head of doctrine, article four of the canons, that important article There remain, however, in man since the fall the glimmerings of natural life, whereby he retains some knowledge of God, of natural things, of the differences between good and evil, and discovers some regard for virtue, good order in society, and for maintaining an orderly external deportment. In other words, every man knows there's a God. Every man knows what's right or wrong. But, notice what it continues. So far is this light of nature from being sufficient to bring him to a saving knowledge of God and to true conversion, that he is incapable of using it aright, even in things natural and civil. Nay, further, this light, such as it is, man in various ways renders wholly polluted and holds it in unrighteousness by doing which he becomes inexcusable before God. So God has given him to know there is a God. God gives him to know what's right and wrong. But that... Revelation of God through creation, we would say, cannot work good in the heart of a man. More is required. Regeneration is necessary. And apart from regeneration, no natural man is going to do what's good in God's eyes. Similarly, the Westminster Confession, on the second page, on the bottom, chapter 16 of Good Works, in the seventh article, works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands. Think of Jehu. God commanded Jehu, cut off the whole house of Ahab. He did what God commanded. Though they may be things which God commands and of good use both to themselves and others, yet because they proceed not from an heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word nor to a right end the glory of God. They are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet to receive grace from God. And yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God. Natural man sees relationships, sees laws, sees the rules of life as ordained by God, but he sees, even understands to a degree the usefulness, but rather than doing it for God, he adapts it for himself. Ephraim was doing the same thing. She would maintain herself over against God, and God had to turn. God had to work that transformation. And only until God turned her, then was she now able to do works pleasing to God. The works of a believer then are truly good because of that origin, worked by God of his grace. And the Holy Spirit is described as the one alone who causes that wonder. Ezekiel thirty six twenty seven, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Similarly here in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, This shall be the covenant that I will make in the house of Israel. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And how many other passages of Scripture don't we have that speak of the same? Philippians 2, verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Ephesians 2, 10. That the works that we perform are before ordained by God that we might walk in. That that faith is a gift of God. It's not anything of ourselves. Our prayers, our worship, our giving. It's all a fruit of God's work in us. We owe our all to Him. When it's from God, worked by His Spirit in Christ, we confess it's good. We read Scripture. We worship. The whole of our life becomes a work that's pleasing to God, directed to the glory and honor of God. Now the fact that we remain totally depraved does not destroy the truth of good works in the life of the believer. That which identifies us is not our depravity. It's the new life that is ours in Christ. Those works are never perfect. They can never serve as the foundation, the ground of our salvation. They're the fruit of God's work of salvation. But because they are imperfect, because they are still affected by sin, Christ is necessary in order to purge them, to purify them, in order that they rise up as that which is pleasing to God. God takes the works that he performs within us, purges them, and makes them pleasing in his sight so that sincerely the works of believers are good. They're pleasing in God's eyes. Think of Abel and Cain. Abel's sacrifice was well-pleasing in God's eyes. It was worked by God It was not perfect. It was affected by the sin of his nature. But God is the one that purged and purified it in order that it might rise up as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. That's the wonder of God's work in us. Conversion. Are you living daily in that experience? Every day, calling your children to conversion calling ourselves to repentance and true conversion, constantly leaning on Him and knowing the wonder by which Jehovah God is turning us in order that we be turned and that we know the wonder and the joy of that life that's from above. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what a joy to know Thy work of grace in us by Thy Spirit that Thou hast given unto us a life that's from above, that Thou art busy turning us, working the guilt, the shame of sin, working in us repentance, sorrow, giving us a delight in the things of Thy kingdom, cause that we might increasingly confess our sin, that that sin might be exposed, and that we might live unto the praise and honor of Thy great and glorious name. Keep us from pride, keep us from the selfish pursuit of our own will and our own ways, and grant unto us the grace by which we might know the liberty that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.